Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. 1998. 1998 was the year that Vince Carter first took the court as a National Basketball Association player, and he did it again yesterday. 22 years in the NBA. 22, I can't even imagine it. So here's what I'd like you to picture. This is the equivalent of right now R.J. Barrett, who just made his debut, second youngest player to ever score 20 points in his first game as a Nick. Imagine if he's still playing... And out comes Jimmy Butler's new daughter. That's what we're talking about. That's how long Vince Carter has been playing. Congrats, Vince. You are my man of Duncan. See you soon on the court. We got to realize and talk about World Series. Don't like the off days. I really don't because I want the games to happen. I'm ready for it. I know if you're Houston, you want to be playing because you certainly want no part of the distractions that have been taking place. But we've got game three coming up tonight. Annabelle Sanchez. Annabelle Sanchez, who was really supposed to be the four starter for Washington, signed a two-year deal before the season started to complement the top three in the rotation, has turned in a surprising season. Not for me. I had him in 2006 when he threw a no-hitter. Thank God for no replay because Eric Burns was safe. You know it. Annabelle, Eric knows it. We all know it. Hanley took way too long to throw the ball. But in any case, he got his no-hitter. He's now on the Nationals, and he's got a chance to go against Zach Renke. Zach Renke was supposed to be giving his team at least a 2-1 lead in the series, potentially a 3-0 lead in the series. Instead, Zach is pitching for the Astros' playoff life. They didn't imagine that when they brought him in from uh, the Diamondbacks in the off- uh, in, at the trade deadline, and they certainly didn't imagine that this series would go the way it has. But the best thing about baseball is that you need to win four out of seven games, and it's only 2 nothing. So what are the keys as I'm examining and thinking about game three? The first key is very simple. Houston has to get rid of the cloud that is over its franchise. And this cloud has been moving in, and it sort of settled in right two days ago, and it hasn't moved, and then they lost two games. They've got to clear it, clear the distractions. We've been talking about it nonstop on HQ. We've been talking about it on this show. And the cloud, what happens is players try to pretend that they're not distracted by it. Front office pretends they're not distracted by it, but they're on their phones. They're on Twitter. They've got newspapers. I wonder if they put newspapers in the clubhouse anymore. We do, but no one looks at them because they're all on their tablets and their phones. So you can't escape the reality of this story. A.J. Hinch, the manager of the Astros, has one job to do tonight, and that is to make sure that his players actually play. Because if you've looked at the defensive blunders, if you've looked at some of the poor approaches at the plate, that to me is distraction, lack of concentration. And when that happens, you actually end up having a big problem, as in you're down 2 nothing. Another key to this game, Houston has to not believe that they can hit a three-game home run. Yes, I said that, a three-game home run. What do I mean by that? When you're down uh, 
three runs in the ninth inning, what we tell our players is, the leadoff hitter, hey, just get on base. But when that player gets down on the knob and starts swinging out of his shoes, we're all, we always say, what are you doing? The most you can do is make it so we're down two runs. Just get on base. Let's get the line moving. Sometimes when I'm down in a game, I'm actually rooting for doubles and singles instead of home runs because I want that momentum. If you're down two runs in the ninth inning and get a solo home run to lead off, you're down one. You still need an at-bat. You still need a runner. You still need a base runner. So, Houston, you can't hit a three-game home run. You can't win three at once. Win game three only. Be down two to one. Believe me, going into game four, you would then have the momentum. So, three keys. Houston, get rid of the distraction. Don't go for the three-run, three-game home run. And the third one is the Nats. If Annabelle Sanchez, help the Nats avoid anyone in your bullpen whose name is not Hudson and Doolittle. What has been successful for the Nats is having Patrick Corbin come out of the bullpen to relieve a starter and then bridge all the way to Hudson and Doolittle at the back end of the pen. Sometimes it's been Hudson Doolittle, sometimes Doolittle Hudson. It makes no difference. It just can never be Rodney Rainey. You just don't want to see anyone in that bullpen other than Corbin Hudson Doolittle. But here's the catch. Corbin is slated to start game four. And the Nationals have a two-game lead. So what the general manager, Mike Rizzo, president of baseball operations, told his manager, Dave Martinez, is we're going to start Corbin in game four because the worst position we're in is down two games to one. The best position is we're trying to clinch. But in this game three, you will avoid using Corbin out of the pen. What's the one scenario where that won't work? in a huge, long, extra-inning game, which I hope to avoid, obviously, but then you sometimes have to go to next day's starter, which in this case would be Patrick Corbin. But if that happens, who's the Astros' game four starter? One of my favorite things in baseball uh, is when they announce that uh, starting pitching in game four, and they put sort of an avatar of nobody, it's TBD versus Patrick Corbin. TBD is a very famous pitcher. Uh, he doesn't need any days of rest because he can go every day, and he can go for multiple teams at once. We always like to announce TBDs, and I never understood why. What's the big mystery? Is it a gambling issue? No, we're not betting on our own team. We're not betting against our team. Oh, it must be a strategy issue. We don't want the other team to know who we're pitching so they can't prepare for us. Well, that's not it either, because guess what? With analytics, with technology, we are prepared for every single pitcher on another team's roster before the series even starts. And we know exactly who the starters are and who the relievers are in the bullpen, so we're prepared for anybody. So it's not like we're fooling anyone by having a TBD. So that can't be the reason. I wonder if the Astros are trying to maybe outsmart themselves, or are they possibly waiting to see whether they win or lose Game three, let me tell you the problem with that theory. Let's pretend that tonight, Zach Renke wins the game, you're down 2-1. Do you go into game four if you're the Astros saying, hey, this is a give me game right now, we won game three? No, because if you lose game four, you're down three games to one, and the odds are very much against you. You've got to win game four. And if you lose today, and you're the Astros, and you're down 3 nothing. TBD, you have to win the next game. You have to come back with Cole on short rest. You have no choice. You're not doing a bullpen game when you're facing elimination. You're not pitching or Katie or, or, or Presley or 
James or Hera, any of them. No, you're going to have to go short rest, short rest, cobble it together. So TBD to me is just, uh, again, I view it as people trying to be too smart for no particular purpose. I want to see who's pitching, having nothing to do with betting the game. I just don't look like looking at that blank avatar. And when I'm thinking about strategy in the World Series, win every single game. Win now. Stop planning for tomorrow. When you're the Nats, put your foot on the gas tonight. Let Sanchez, let him go as deep as he can go. But if you have to use Corbin to win this game, who cares about game four? Win tonight. Not enough managers do that. If I'm a manager and I'm telling my manager what to do, I want to get a ring. To get a ring, I have to win four games. I don't care how I win them. Do whatever it takes. So if Corbin has to go tonight, I would say let Corbin go. It'll be interesting to see if the Nats agree with me. One of the other things that I've enjoyed watching during this off day is how little there's been talk of the World Series. It's been bothering me greatly. And the reason it's been bothering me is because the entire focus is off the field. Now, as a PR person, you've heard, or P.T. Barnum once said that any good public, any publicity is good publicity as long as they spell your name right. I think you all know, people who know me, I don't like when you put a P in my name, and I'll correct that anytime I can because I'm Sam Sun. Maybe at David P. Sampson on Twitter throws people off, so they put the P in the name Sampson instead of my middle name, which is Philip. I actually don't know why they do it, but the fact is that I want publicity. Everybody wants publicity. That's what you're trying to get. Is it okay if they're talking about you negatively or positively? This is the crux of the World Series issue that is being faced right now by the Commissioner of Baseball and the Houston Astros organization. What's supposed to be the greatest week in baseball has been overcome by the off-the-field travails of the Houston Astros. Where do we start? Let's start with the fact that their assistant general manager, Brandon Taubman, did the unthinkable and got himself involved in a domestic violence situation, talking about one of his players, Roberto Zuna, when they were clinching the series over the Yankees, the league championship series. He said some words he shouldn't have. Then he denied he said them. Then the Astros denied he said them. I'm summing up for you. Then the Astros said, oh, I guess he did say them. Then MLB said, we are going to investigate. And then yesterday came what people hope in the Astros organization is the final word, but I'm here to say it's not. Jeff Lunau, what say you? First of all, apologies to Stephanie and to the rest of the people that were involved in the incident. Um, we have uh, separated with Brandon Taubman. He's no longer an employee of the Astros. His behavior was inappropriate and not representative of who the Astros are and our culture and what we stand for. Um, that original um, reaction by the Astros was wrong, and we own it as an organization. Uh, there were many people involved in reviewing that and approving that, and I'm not going to get into the details of that. It was wrong. It was the Astros' decision, and that's, um, that's where I'm going to leave that. There were many people involved, Jeff. I'd like a list. Can you please submit a list to me of all the people involved who actually approved the statement that the Astros came out with? It, it didn't have any name on it. You're right. That was later when Jim Crane had to put his name on something. But then they put you in front of the cameras. And the best you could do, Jeff, listen, you put together a good team. Don't get me wrong. You're pretty good at what you and Jim Crane have done in building a winner. You, you lost 100 games three years in a row. You're trying to build a dynasty. I get it. But here's one thing you may not be that good at. 
sitting in front of a microphone and being a person. I want a list of names who would read that statement and think that that's the approach we should be taking. And then you were asked, I couldn't, I couldn't do this to you, Jeff. I, I should have done it, but I didn't. You were asked in that press conference, Hey, have you apologized to Stephanie, the writer at Sports Illustrated, who basically was smeared by the Astros? And his response was awesome. Not. He said, no, I'm sorry. You know, it's the World Series and I've been busy. I haven't had time. Jeff, you haven't had time to take one minute and apologize to the writer who you smeared and to the woman who got the whole story right from the beginning? FYI, she was sitting right in front of you as you were giving your press conference. You couldn't, as a human being, have stood up during the press conference and said, Stephanie, I'm sorry I haven't seen you earlier. I wanted to tell you I'm so sorry for what I and the rest of the organization did. It's past inexcusable, and the termination of Brendan Taubman is the first step of many to making this right. Is that so difficult? What about calling Stephanie, texting Stephanie, seeing her before the press conference started? So during the press conference, he could say, hey, guess what? I just had a chance to speak to Stephanie, and I'm starting the healing process by apologizing. The Astros had a chance to get it right again. Shockingly, they didn't. They're as good as building baseball teams as they are bad at figuring out how to deal with PR and any sort of human interrelations. Well, congrats, though, Nats. You have an entire nation Ooh, that sounds like Simon and Garfunkel. You have an entire nation rooting for you, and I sit amongst them. Uh, the Boston Red Sox are hiring. They fired Dave Dombrowski. Dave Dombrowski I've known for 18 years. Uh, he was at the Marlins. He was the uh, president of the Marlins and GM of the Marlins um, when they started with expansion. He then left when John Henry in 1990, 2002, when John Henry was selling the team, John, uh, Dave Dombrowski went to Detroit. Uh, he spent a lot of money in Detroit. He is very good at spending money. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and he likes working for owners who let him spend money. He then went to Boston, got a ring, did a great job. Uh, and now he is fired, gone. So which way are the Red Sox going? They've talked about the fact that they're trying to bring their payroll down. They're trying to get below the luxury tax. Wouldn't you know who the leading candidate is? Chaim Bloom. He of Yale education. God, I don't understand what the obsession is with the Ivy Leagues and being a GM these days. We hired a guy from Harvard, Mike Hill, and uh, against what any of us wanted because as Yale people, I didn't go to Yale, but I love Yale. Uh, you don't think Harvard people can get it done, but they can, and they are. But this guy in Bloom guy, he's super smart. But is that why the Red Sox want him? So here's what Bloom is good at and what he's not good at. Don't make the mistake of thinking because he works for the Rays that he knows how to take a small payroll and win. And that he can then translate into making a big payroll team small. Here's why Tampa's so good. They have a combination of two things. Intelligence and necessity. Those are two very important concepts. They're very, very smart but they need to make the moves they're making because their payroll needs to be at a certain level. So if you have to make trades to keep your payroll down and you combine that with intelligence, you have a chance to do what the Rays have done. But then you bring, let's say, Andrew Friedman from the Rays to the Dodgers with a much higher payroll. He's had a hugely successful run, seven years in a row, but no World Series. He's got this small market mentality, doesn't want to overspend on free agents, except he could, but he doesn't want to. 
Bloom is going to be the same thing as Andrew Friedman. He's going to go to the Red Sox and he's going to feel like a kid in a candy store. He's going to have such a huge opportunity to have money to spend, but the Red Sox are bringing him in not to spend money. Bloom is going there thinking he's finally free from the small market shackles. So the marriage of those two is going to be very interesting. It's tough to work for John Henry and Tom Werner, Sam Kennedy. They're all very good people, but difficult to work for because the expectations with the Red Sox are so high. Chaim Bloom has no experience at all in running an organization. He has experience in thought and in intelligence. And really, it's a lot like what the Astros and many other teams have done, where you're not necessarily bringing in people people. You're bringing in analytic people and numbers people. And you're hopeful that that's enough to get you more rings and obviously more playoff appearances. So good luck to Chaim Bloom. I actually hope he gets that job. There have been no other names rumored. That's a wait to see. I watched, uh, I watched basketball last night. There was no baseball, so what am I gonna do? I watched a little of the, uh, of the Redskins Vikings game. I, I like watching Kirk Cousins. I have a hard time watching the Redskins except rooting for them to lose until Daniel Snyder wakes up and, and says that he's Jerry Jones. So I root against them. But I'm watching NFL, but I'm also watching basketball. And I'm watching the game between the Bucks and the Rockets. As if you heard yesterday's episode of Nothing Personal, uh, and if you did, please subscribe and rate and review. But if you were listening, you heard us pick the Bucks to beat the Rockets. Why did I think that? Because it turns out the Rockets are really a victim of what I'm describing as like a chuck and duck league. Everyone's shooting threes all the time. It's just, when I grew up watching basketball, I learned everything I know from Red Halsman, the former coach of the Knicks, who won two titles for the Knicks. I learned under, I knew Pat Riley and know Pat Riley and spoke to him about basketball and learned about how to play. Uh, just because I'm small doesn't mean I couldn't play. I loved it, and I love being a fan and learning the ins and outs of the game. What's amazing to me is things that you would never do 20 years ago are acceptable now, and to me, they're unacceptable. And the Rockets did it no fewer than seven times. They would go down one on four. That means there is one offensive player. He's one on four. He pulls up and shoots a three, a pull-up three. Clanks off the rim. Of course, the Bucks get the rebound, and then the Bucks go the other way. When that shot goes in, the fans cheer and everyone's excited. But when it doesn't go in, you look like an idiot. Why is it that it's acceptable to coaches and to GMs in the NBA to allow that type of play? And the answer is it's the same reason in baseball that we allow people to either hit home runs or strike out. This all-or-nothing approach is pervasive in sports, and it got me thinking as to why. And then I realized it's the same reason that so many things happen in the sports world. Yes, it's just money. How can it be money causing a one-on-four three-pointer to be taken or for bad basketball or bad baseball? Why is that? Because we as the audience, we as fans are dictating it. What do we love seeing when we watch CBS Sports HQ and the Highlight Show? What do we love seeing when we're on YouTube looking at highlights? We don't love the pick and roll that then leads to a 15-foot jump shot, free throw line extended, beautiful play in basketball. What about an amazing hit and run where the runner goes from first to third because the hitter, like a Martin Prado, goes the other way? That's beautiful to watch. That's not ratings. That's not what our TV partners want. They want home runs. They want strikeouts. They want three-pointers. They want dunks. They want the 10-second video clip that will get the clicks. Clicks. 
It's all about the clicks. It's all you hear about in league offices right now. We need more followers. We need more clicks. We need more viewers. They're not talking about better quality of sport. They're talking about better quality of clip. So this is what we are coaching. This is what young players are seeing as they are learning the game. When they're in grade school, they're watching the same highlight shows that we're watching, and they see what it takes to be a major leaguer or a professional basketball player. I find it to be completely unacceptable, and uh, it's not the game I want. I thought the Rockets, they're just not a good team when you're doing that. They've got great individual offensive players. James Harden is one of the best offensive players I've ever seen, but he can't beat a team. And Giannis and the Bucks played a better game. And by that, I mean they hit more of the one-on-four three-point shots. One thing that uh, I was talking about, I was a fan when I was a kid. I would go to Nick games. Ever since I was a little boy, I went to Nick games. All the way really through 1999 when I was no longer a little boy, but I felt like it. My life revolved around the New York Knicks. I wouldn't want to go out and socialize on road games I would want to watch it. I would stretch before games. I had a uniform that I would wear. It was a Knicks shirt. I had a towel because I would sweat, and I would be calling plays, and I'd be very focused on things that were going on off the court, what was going on in Madison Square Garden with who the sponsors were, and this is when I was young. And one thing I got a big chance to do was to be a heckler. I loved to heckle, but I always heckled responsibly. I never swore because I wasn't allowed to, and I never wanted to. I wanted to hurt the players with my words and with my articulation and gesticulation. I didn't want to hurt them by insulting them and their personal lives or how they looked. No. So, for example, one of the great, great heckles of all time was to the owner of the Philadelphia 76ers back when Sean Bradley was playing. The owner's name was Harold Katz at the time. And I was sitting a few rows behind the opposing team's owners. And so I would get in the ears of not just the opposing team players, but also owners of the opposing team. It's actually the first time I ever met Jerry Reinsdorf was heckling Jerry Reinsdorf and Jerry Krause about certain mistakes they had done in, in, in putting the Bulls together prior to, of course, Jordan breaking my heart for six out of eight years. So Harold Katz, the Philadelphia 76ers, is sitting there. Sean Bradley, if you remember him, the seven foot six uh, player. I think he was from Utah. I can't remember, uh, but it didn't matter. I don't care about religion. I don't care about color, creed, height. I love short guys. I love tall guys. I love if you can play. I love it. But Sean uh, Bradley was overpaid, completely overpaid, signed to a ridiculous contract by the Sixers. So I yelled at Harold Katz. I said, "Hey, Harold." Do you know that Sean Bradley has a Hoover hooked up to your bank account and he is sucking out $1 million every time he turns the ball over? No swearing, but it was cutting because Harold Katz knew that he had overpaid. He knew his team was bad. And these are the type of heckles that I like to see. I'm telling you this story because life has changed. Fans have changed, and it is inexcusable, and it is causing a major concern between players and fans. Now fans believe because of social media, players are more accessible. Everyone feels like they know the players or celebrities just because they see them on Instagram or see their views on Twitter. I never thought I knew the players. I knew that they were like athletes and superstars, unattainable, untouchable. I could yell in their general world, but that's the best I could ever hope to do. Now people think they're in the world of their favorite players. But when you've got the lovers, you've also got the haters. 
There's no reason for basketball players to be subjected to racist and verbal taunting the way that they have, or in baseball, or in the NFL. And don't get me wrong, this isn't a one-off occurrence. This is happening commonly, where fans have crossed the line. We talked about it in this show, about throwing things on the field at Yankee Stadium. I don't want to do that. We're not talking about it. We're talking about how do we solve the divide right now between fans who believe that they know the player only because of social media versus fans having respect for what the athletes are trying to do both on the field and off the field. That's one issue coupled with the second issue, which is why are fans so close to the athletes now? Second one first, money. We are making sure that media doesn't get in the way, advertising doesn't get in the way, players don't get in the way. We are putting people closer and closer to the action, closer and closer to the players, because that is where you make the most money. Courtside in the NBA, the Spike Lee seats, you are on top of the players. Spike Lee is a great heckler, but he was never disrespectful. The worst he ever did was put the... uh choke sign to Reggie Miller of the Pacers, who then crushed us, the Knicks, and gave the choke sign right back. That's all in good fun. But if you've got a drunk person, or worse, an illiterate, angry, racist person who is taunting fans, as a fan taunting players, you have a situation where safety is being compromised, and players react, and then the players get suspended. The players get fined, and all that happens to the fan All that happens is they lose their season tickets or they're not allowed in the ballpark any longer. I've got a proposal. I want it to be a crime. Why can't we make this world slightly nicer than it is? Why can't we make it okay, again, to be nice and to engage in debate, into debate where it's not name-calling and it's not based on hatred? Why can't we make it so we can have access to our favorite players and actors, but we do it in a respectful way? I say make it a misdemeanor, a real crime where you get arrested and you get taken out in handcuffs. If you say inappropriate things, don't give me the free freedom of speech argument. Don't give me the freedom of expression argument. You are in somebody's arena. You are in somebody's ballpark. You play by their rules. When you buy a ticket and walk in, it's their rules, not yours. And if you do something racist or that possibly could interfere with the safety of the athlete, That's a crime. Then on the other side, for the athletes, it's zero tolerance. You may not engage. You may not engage with fans who are committing crimes. You may not. Zero tolerance. Automatic suspension. You spit on a player, on a fan, and you're a player, suspended. You talk back to a a fan who has been taunting you. There are microphones everywhere. There's cameras everywhere. It's not like the old days where the second person in the hockey fight gets the five-minute major or the second person in a brawl gets the gets the ejection and the second technical in the NBA or gets thrown out of the MLB game. No, no, it's not like that at all. We've got cameras everywhere. Building Marlins Park, we made sure that we could see every fan wherever they were. Doesn't matter. I mean, not in the restroom, at least the entry to the restroom, yes, not in the stall. But cameras to make sure that we are going to know if you started something. So what I propose, and I I will go to the mat on this because I don't want to give up the access that fans have to players. It's too important. It's too, I don't want the players to be as unapproachable as they were when I was young. I want players and fans to live together and to show the product that we have in baseball, basketball, football, all sports, to show the grace and talent of these athletes. 
And to do it, I want to get people closer and closer. But with that comes responsibility. And if fans cannot uphold their side of the bargain, you're going to pay for it. We're going to put it in the penal system, and we're going to make it come to an end. Because I'm tired of one bad apple ruining it for millions and millions of good apples. So if you're the bad apple out there, not any longer. Vince McMahon, is your stock down? I don't know what's going on, but you're starting a new league. You got yourself a new TV deal. And for whatever reason, you're going cheap on players. And for me to side with players is staggering. I'm trying to hold salaries down every minute of every day. I want to pay as little money as possible to every single employee and every single player. But you have to pay in order to get talent. And when there's expiring talent, you have to pay more. What does that mean? If I can replace person X with person Y, I don't have to pay person X that much money. In baseball, we call it wins above replacement. But as an employer, I just call it people above people. Player A, person A gets paid $50,000. If I can get someone to do the same job who's just as good for $49,000, I'm making a change. But Vince, you took that philosophy and you went slightly too far. It was just announced today that a former player from the University of Tennessee, uh, Vereen, he decided that he makes more money as a software developer than he would in the XFL. He was going to be paid somewhere between twenty-seven and $55,000. The question is, Vince, who's going to replace him? It's not like you could just go out and get a weekend football player. These are actual football players in pads in a league where you've invested hundreds of millions of dollars. It seems to me that you're jumping over dollars to pick up pennies, and that's not a smart business plan because you've already decided you sold a lot of your stock, right, in WWE. You've invested a ton of money in the XFL. You just had your draft. You got the TV deal where you're going to get exposure on the, the networks. You're doing what other failed leagues have not done. But what's the thing that you need? You need product. I know the XFL will not be the NFL, but it can't be Bob's Beer League. You've got to have players who actually know what they're doing. So we're at me. I would make sure that I'm taking the time to pay the players right in certain positions. They decided to start with quarterbacks up to half a million dollars. Who exactly is going to protect the quarterbacks? Me? You, Vince? You need people because if you don't have an offensive line and you're pretending you're a football league, then those quarterbacks get hurt and they don't play. And then what are you going to do? This is why offensive linemen make so much money in the NFL. Because what good is a $20 million a year quarterback if he is on his back the entire game, or if he's hurt, or if he twists his ankle, or breaks his back. They need protection. So when you're paying players, Vince, don't just start at the quarterbacks and then stop. You gotta keep going. The question is, will he or won't we? But I'll tell you what I, there's no question for me what I'm doing. As soon as I'm done with the show today, uh, it's a celebration day for me. Every day, uh, there we go, on this day. That's it. That's uh, Mike Lowell, Dontrell Willis, Lenny Harris, Brian Banks, who's now a dentist. Not everyone gets rich playing baseball. He's up in that in that picture. This day, 16 years ago, the Florida Marlins beat the New York Yankees to win the World Series. 
16 years ago. I remember every single thing about that day. It led to this ring, which came later. But that day started knowing that we were up three games to two, waking up in the hotel. And it started with a police escort from the team hotel to Yankee Stadium. And the team bus went up Madison Avenue in New York. The team hotel was on 42nd and Lex. It was a Hyatt hotel. And we had a police escort, so there was no traffic at all. But what there was was booing. People knew that we were the team bus for whatever reason. And they were lining the streets as though we were running the New York Marathon. And we remember looking out. And in the in ordinary times, the way it works with buses, if you've ever seen Major League Baseball buses, there's always two buses. The first bus is for staff and for any players who have their wives with them. The second bus is for all players who have no family. And so we have no idea what goes on in the second bus. We don't want to know what goes on in the second bus. I've never been on the second bus. I'm not allowed on the second bus. I don't want to go on the second bus. I don't care. The first bus is my bus. There are seats. It's assigned where you sit. And it's always fun to watch the players get on the first bus who have their family with them. And they're sort of meekly looking at management because they have to walk past management to go sit toward the back of the bus. But come World Series time, it's all for one, one for all. There's not specific assignments of buses. We all just have to get to Yankee Stadium and get back after the game. It's literally you run for whatever seat you can get. So we're going up Madison Avenue. We get to the uh, ballpark, and it's Yankee Stadium. We pull up, and people on the bus were not quiet. The players were not quiet. And that's when I knew we had a chance to win. They were actually excited. They were yelling out at the fans who were watching and booing as we pulled into that little parking lot across from the old Yankee Stadium within the chain link fences where people would stand up against the fence like we were the prisoners or they were the prisoners. And our team was so confident. We had Josh Beckett going on the mound, a 23-year-old, and he just, he was going to win. We were going to win. And it felt a lot like Tom Hanks and League of Their Own. We're going to win. Except we did, and the Yankees were so angry about it. So 16 years ago, I'm watching the final inning, and uh, that's the beginning of the relationship I had with Derek Jeter, actually, who all those years later ended up ending my baseball career in uh, in an organization. I remember, like it was yesterday, the ninth inning, Josh Beckett still in the game. I knew Jack McKean was not going to go to his bullpen. He had told us before the game he's going to pitch Josh Beckett. Literally, that's where I got the expression until his arm falls off. And if we're going to lose that game, we're losing it because of Josh Beckett. If we're going to win it, we're winning it because of Josh Beckett. You know, Ugeth Urbina's arm was tired. Looper's arm was tired. Chad Fox had been overexposed already uh, back then. And we just, we weren't going to go back to Dontrell. This was, who is a, a bullpen guy, having been a starter throughout the year. So Josh Beckett is in the game and it's three outs to go. We're winning the game two nothing. And I know that it's Jorge Posada who'd be the third out. And I was calculating how many batters until Derek Jeter would get to hit. And I remember like it was yesterday, Derek Jeter had his, um, you know how in, in dugouts there's padding and he was leaning up with the, on the padding and his face was just watching the game. And it occurred to me that Derek Jeter was doing exactly what I was doing. He was just watching the game. He had as much to do with the ninth inning as I did. And I was sitting on the outfield side of third base. And I remember looking into the first base dugout where he was and realizing we're going to win. There's nothing Jeter can do. It's not like Michael Jordan can break my heart the way he did as a Knicks fan all those years or the Houston Rockets can break my heart the way they did in 94 and 95. Derek Jeter was not going to break my heart that year. He waited. So 
We win the game. We celebrate. That's Miguel Cabrera, Bob Dupay, the old president of baseball, and Larry Beinfest, the, the GM of that team and, and the architect of that team. Uh, people say it was Dave Dombrowski, uh, but Larry Beinfest came in with the owner, Jeffrey Laurie, and made some moves that were the difference between us winning. And that's what you play for. That picture with that ring, that's the this exact ring in that box. That's Miguel Cabrera's ring, and he still has it. He and I, uh, he, he's gotten a bit older since then, but whenever I see Miguel, we talk about it, or Mike Lowell. It's the first thing, Jeff Conine. We talk about that night and what we did after we won and realizing that when you win a World Series, you don't take it for granted because you may never win another one. Some teams are lucky enough to. The Marlins have won two. I've been a part of one. I can just tell you that uh, it's a dream come true. So thank you to the New York Yankees for making sure that Derek Jeter could not beat me that day. He had to wait until two years ago to do it. So the uh, Nats are up 2 nothing. Could they win? Could they lose? The Houston Astros are very focused on a team called the New York Yankees because the New York Yankees were the last team to go down 2 nothing, losing two at home, and then win the World Series. That was in 1996. What was the number one movie in 1996? I got to thinking. I looked it up, and here it is. Sleepers, directed by Barry Levinson. If you haven't seen it, go see it. But this is not a movie to be taken lightly. This is not a movie that is funny. This is a disturbing, difficult movie about four boys who have committed a crime. They go to prison and they suffer. Can you spoil a movie from 23 years ago? Yeah, I think you can. Uh, they get abused by Kevin Bacon in prison. And this is the story of what happens when they get out of prison and what they do to exact revenge on the very man who ruined their lives. The cast unbelievable. Brad Pitt, you've heard of him. Robert De Niro, you've heard of him. Dustin Hoffman, I hope you've heard of him. Jason Patrick, you may not have heard of, but he's a very good actor. Barry Levinson directed Rain Man with Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman, a very accomplished director. The reason this is an important movie to see, though I wouldn't suggest it to the Nationals or Astros because it doesn't exactly put you in an uplifting mood. This is a movie you see not before you're going out. This isn't a pregame movie. This isn't when you're pre-gaming at home with drinks. This is when you're ready to focus on good storytelling and for you to realize that how important off-the-field issues can be. It's called Sleepers. Make sure you see it. It's based on a true story. There's been no proof that it actually happened. I think it's based on what could be true versus what is true in terms of this exact story. But the facts that surround this story are definitely true, and they're just as pertinent and prevalent today as they were in 1996. So Astros, what feels like a long time ago, it actually, the beat goes on. So therefore, if Sleepers can be the number one movie in 96, you, the Astros, can still get it done. This World Series is not over. Every day we uh, we do a pick, and uh, it's an important part of the show because who doesn't want to win money? And people have been fading me because I haven't been doing very well. But so I did a pick last night. And uh, the thing about basketball is when you pick the road team, you're you're always worried about the run that the home team's going to go on. How many of you went against me? Uh, I assume that when I did the Bucks plus two, you all took the Rockets minus two. I don't blame you for doing that. I would probably fade me too. But the reason why you shouldn't have is we talked about it earlier in this in this show. The Bucks are simply a better team, and I was just saying and. Take the better team. As I'm watching the game, the Rockets go out to a big early lead. Do you panic as a gambler? Do you try to chase and maybe switch or hedge? 
Never do that. In the NBA, a 15-point lead early in the game doesn't mean a thing. The Bucks came back and won the game straight up. Yes, if you listen to me, you bet the Bucks. That's a winner. And they were an underdog. You got two points. You didn't sweat at all. First time in a while, you didn't sweat. I'm going for two in a row. Unfortunately, in baseball, I've not had as much luck, though we did pick the Nats in game two. How do I see game three? This is going to be decided for me pretty early in the game when you've got Zach Greinke going against Annabelle Sanchez. The thing you have to look for for Greinke is how often he's using his changeup. That's the key. He's got a circle change, and I'm showing it. If you're listening on, on Apple or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast, thank you. If you're watching on YouTube uh, or CBS Sports, thanks for that too. A circle change is when you have a ball and you put you put literally your fingers in a circle, three fingers. You don't wear a ring like this. You cover the ball, and you do an exact fastball motion with your hand, but you release it, and a hitter who's getting ready for 95 or 96 all of a sudden sees 88, 89. That may not sound like a big difference, but that's why change-ups are so effective. It looks exactly like a fastball, and you swing as though it's a fastball, which means you start the swing early, which is how you look like Bugs Bunny. What I'm looking for early is do the national hitters look like Bugs Bunny? Strike one, strike two, strike three. Have you all seen that uh, cartoon? That's what happens when you how foolish you can look when you swing at a change-up way too early. You're done swinging, and the ball hasn't even gotten close to the catcher's glove. So I've got to see about Granke's change-up. Assuming that he throws it, I'm looking for the Astros to win this game. The Nats seem like the team of destiny to me, but it is highly, highly unlikely that they are going to go up 3 nothing. I am not saying there's a conspiracy in Major League Baseball. We'll talk about that later. What I am saying is baseball cannot afford, given the stories surrounding this World Series, for this to be a sweep. They need it to go deep. It was a wait to see yesterday in terms of this series going seven games. In order for my wait to see from yesterday to be correct, the Astros have to win today. Look for the Astros to win this game. Don't be scared about giving on the road. You're about minus 140. I have no problem with that. Astros win. Wait to see is interesting this today. What we're doing with wait to see is, is every single uh, day I'm going to give you a different wait to see and we're going to keep track. There's going to be accountability. My wait to see is about the XFL today. Will they play a full season? Why is that even a question worth asking? Well, the fix is in on the wait to see today because I want to make sure that I get this one right. Because I was on them earlier in the show about their pay scale to their players and about certain players deciding that they'd rather be software developers, not that there's anything wrong with that, but they'd rather be software developers than actually play in his league. But how do I know and how can I guarantee that they're going to play one full season? Well, here's why. Because he already put the money aside to finance the entire full season. Do you remember that football league that was before the AAFL the AFL, it was earlier this year in 2019, and they folded before one full season. Can you imagine the first kickoff of the year and they did not have the money to even survive a full season? That's why you don't invest in companies that don't have proper financing, why they don't have cash reserves. If you're ever looking at when you're buying something, whether it's a stock or whether it's to invest in a company or whatever it is, you have to make sure that it can be a going concern because if you don't have money to operate, you're done. So the first thing Vince McMahon did is he sold enough stock to have enough money that he knew he could get through an entire season. I'm not saying there's going to be a season two, but my wait to see is will XFL actually play a full season? That is a guaranteed yes. 
But of course, it's wait to see because they haven't done it quite yet. I have absolutely so many more topics I want to cover today. So I'm going to end with one quick one that really is sort of fun. I got to go back to the World Series because I'm remembering one quick story to tell you. When you first win the World Series and everyone crowds the field, what you see now is executives on the field and photographers on the field and and there's, there's all sorts of uh, celebrations on the field and the trophy presentation is on the field. What came out today was the Nationals were practicing their trophy presentation and the Twitterverse lost its mind. They're only up two games. How can you practice a trophy presentation when you haven't won yet? Well, my trophy presentation was inside the locker room at Yankee Stadium because they would never have us do it outside because we'd have stuff thrown at us, which we also talked about in this show. But don't blame the Nationals players. Don't blame the Nationals and don't think it's a curse. They have to rehearse and practice the trophy presentation. It's a logistical nightmare during the TV timeout from the last pitch until the trophy presentation starts. They have to bring the stage in. They have to bring the Chevrolet MVP vehicle in from the outfield. These things happen with practice. It is the staff. It's the grounds crew. It's the front office. It's the network getting the camera angles right. This is not a player who is beginning to plan what to do with the Stanley Cup when they're only up three to one in the Stanley Cup and they're pretending they're drinking from it. No, no. This is fine. The Nats are okay. For all of you who think they have cursed it away, they haven't. I still say Astros in six or seven, but for all you who watch the Nats rehearse the trophy presentation, you're not going to need that rehearsal because this series is definitely going back to Houston. Everything we've talked about today, just know it's just business. It's nothing personal. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com